morning. Everybody looks great, and it's good to be together as we continue this series that we started last week called The Grave Robber. And what we're doing in this series is we are looking at seven of the miracles of Jesus as they are found in the book of John. And uh, every week we're going to look at one of these miracles. We started last week with an introductory sermon titled, Don't Miss the Miracles. And if you missed the sermon last week, I encourage you to go to our website and listen to it. Or you can also listen on iTunes, look look for our podcast on iTunes. Uh, or uh, we have an app, just download our app and you can listen there as well. But it's a, it was a good start to our series last week. And today we're going to start on the first of the seven miracles of Jesus as found in the book of John. There are actually eight. The, the eighth one, of course, is the resurrection of Jesus. But in terms of the ones that Jesus himself uh, performed, we're doing this uh, through this series titled The Grave Robber, How Jesus Can Make Your Impossible Possible. And this series is, is based on a book by Mark Batterson. Mark Batterson is a pastor, the lead pastor of the National Community Church in uh, Washington, D.C., and he wrote this book about three or four years ago and called uh, by this title, The Grave Robber. And so if you like to read, I encourage you to look up the book and, and read it. In fact, uh, this book is on sale. You can get it for a very, very uh, good price at uh, our local family Christian store, which is uh, unfortunately going out of business. So everything's on sale there. You can get a, a good price for a copy there. So last week we discovered that uh, we miss the miracles of Jesus when we allow our limited understanding to limit our understanding of who He is, that He is actually God, He's the Son of God, and He's God Himself. And sometimes we also learned uh, we miss the miracles when our disappointments cause us to stop believing in miracles. Sometimes we were expecting God to do something, and when it doesn't happen just the way that we asked or that we needed it according to us, the way we need it, then we become discouraged, we, we're disappointed, and we stop believing in miracles, stop believing in the supernatural power of God. So again, if you missed that sermon last week, I encourage you to, to listen to it and get caught up. Today we're going to read about the winemaker, the winemaker. This is the first miracle that Jesus performed. We're going to end the series talking about the grave robber, but today we're talking about the winemaker in John chapter 2. We're going to read the first 11 verses. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied. My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so, and the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, Everyone brings out the choice wine first, and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. 
but you have saved the best till now. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. Now, weddings are interesting events, aren't they? There's a lot of work and preparation that goes into a wedding and the people involved, especially the the bride, but everybody, I mean, they all want everything to go just right that day. They want the weather to be perfect. They, they want everybody to be on time who's taking part. And for nobody to forget anything, they want the flower girl to actually make it down the aisle. And for, you know, the ring bearer to, to stand still, which is asking a lot of, of little boys. But we want everything to just be perfect. And it's an important event. It's a big deal, so it makes sense. But how often do we hear about things that have gone wrong, sometimes horribly wrong at weddings? Have you ever seen a wedding where something just went terribly wrong? And maybe it was your wedding. I know we have a couple here at our church that, uh, the I believe it was the flowers that caught fire at their wedding. <laughs> yes, that was the Daniels. The flowers caught fire. Like I'm sure that wasn't planned. Uh, how many of you had something go wrong at your wedding? Anybody else besides us, the Daniels? Uh, yeah, okay, a couple of you, yeah. Have, have you ever been to a wedding where somebody fainted? Have you ever seen that? Somebody fainted at the wedding? I've seen it. it yeah, it's very scary and funny. You know, but uh, we didn't laugh much then. But uh, so here in this story we've just read, Jesus and his disciples and his mother are at a wedding. And it's believed that this, it's thought that this was somebody that was related to them, a family friend or a relative. Also because, uh, not just because they were there, but also because Mary actually was concerned about them uh, running out of wine. And, and that was uh, something that, speaking of something going horribly wrong, them running out of wine was a major social faux pas, a, a blunder. I mean, you, just, you didn't have a wedding without enough wine. It just didn't happen. In fact, not only would it have been a major embarrassment to the bride and, and especially the groom, but it was possible that the groom could have been taken to court by the family of the bride because he didn't provide enough wine. I mean, that was just, uh, that was just expected, and it was, it was uh, so important that he could have been sued uh, for not providing enough wine for uh, a wedding. Now, you might think, well, yeah, some things just haven't changed. People like to drink at weddings. But it really wasn't like that. I know that, that you know, in modern times, people get real upset if there's no alcohol in weddings. Some people do. I don't. But some people do. If there's no alcohol at weddings, like, what kind of wedding is this? You know, and we're not talking about that. This is not what was happening back then. If people weren't, you know, weren't going to sue or, or take the groom to, to court because they wanted to get drunk at the wedding. He didn't let them. That had nothing to do with that. But rather it had to do with the fact that wine was very important to their culture because it was uh, something that represented God's promises to them, to the people of Israel. It represented joy and gladness. Many times in the scriptures, in the Psalms, for example, we, we see the word wine associated with joy and with gladness. And it had nothing to do with, with being intoxicated. In fact, the word for wine in the Greek, from the book of John, the word for wine in the Greek is a word that could refer to unfermented wine or fermented wine. We really don't know. 
Uh, it wasn't necessarily fermented or alcoholic. It, it could have been, but if it, if it was fermented, it probably would have been three parts water, one part wine, uh, 25% alcohol. Kind of like taking NyQuil, you know, but it tasted, tasted better, I'm sure. But uh, so the, the issue is not that they wanted to get drunk. They wanted to drink and get drunk, and so they weren't able to, so they're mad at the groom. No, it had nothing to do with that. Wine was just an important part of the Jewish wedding celebrations because of its spiritual significance. Wine was, as I said, was a symbol of joy and gladness. And wine was associated with God's promises to his people. In fact, in the book of Joel, chapter 2, verse 19, we read this. The Lord replied to them, notice the promise of God. I am sending you grain new wine and olive oil, enough to satisfy you fully. Never again will I make you an, ob- an object of scorn to the nations. And then verse 23, Be glad, people of Zion. Rejoice in the Lord your God, for He has given you the autumn rains because He is faithful. He sends you abundant showers, both autumn and spring rains, as before. And as part of the promise, look at verse 24. The threshing floors will be filled with grain. The vats will overflow with new wine and oil. So this was part of, of how they saw God's promises and, and how they, they were able to celebrate God's joy, God's goodness. And so at celebrations, especially at, at weddings, this was part of their culture. They would drink wine and they would rejoice it would celebrate so when they ran out of wine at the wedding this was a big problem and it would have been a major embarrassment to say the least to the groom but jesus stepped in and what makes this miracle a little different from the others that we're going to see is that in this miracle jesus didn't save anybody's life but he did help this couple save face to retain their respect and as I thought about that, I wondered, does God really care about that? Doesn't God care about the big things? But, you know, in terms of helping me save face, because maybe I, maybe I spoke too soon, or maybe I, you know, I, I misspoke, or maybe I promised something I, I, I can't deliver, or any number of things. Is, is God interested in helping us save face and not being humiliated? I think He is, because He cares about the small things in our lives. But let's not forget he's more interested in working miracles that reveal his glory. And that's what this miracle was about. It was about revealing his glory. That's what all miracles do. They reveal the glory of God. In other words, yes, God cares about helping us save face. And, I, and, and that, I don't know, I repeat that because that, that blesses me. That he would say, okay, I'll, I'll help you save face. It's, you know, it's your fault. For some reason they miscalculated. They didn't have enough wine. But Jesus said, okay, I'll help you save face. But I'm going to use this as an opportunity to teach something much more important, much bigger. And uh, so they ran out of wine, and Mary, the mother of Jesus, came to tell Jesus. She just came and she told him, they, they have no more wine. As a matter of fact, she didn't tell him what to do. She didn't even suggest that he do something. I mean, it was implied by his answer, we know she was implying that. But she didn't tell him what to do. She was just telling him they've run out of wine. She was like the credit monitor. You know, a credit monitor doesn't do anything else but tell you, you know, so you're being robbed. Or you have, that's really bad cavity. But I can't fix it. I'm just a monitor. She was just a monitor, just telling him they've run out of wine. 
Now his response though was very interesting. They have a real interesting uh, conversation here. And uh, as I look at this, I mean, I, I, my first response or my, my first reaction to his response was that it sounds a little disrespect, disrespectful the way he answered her when she told him they have no more wine. His response was, woman, why do you involve me? My hour has not yet come. And he's just pretty abrupt. First of all, he calls her woman, which is not disrespectful in that culture. He calls her a woman from the cross. Remember when he was on the cross? So it wasn't necessarily disrespectful, but he says, woman, why do you involve me? He's saying to her, literally, what does this have to do between you and me? How are we involved? And the, the phrase, according to, to scholars, the, the phrase was an idiom. It was very common. People used it to say, what do we have to do with this? This is none of our business. Not just none of my business, but it's none of your business. Woman, why do you involve me? Now, he wasn't being disrespectful to her. I mean, remember, he, he went ahead and took care of the problem by performing the miracle. But he says, why do you involve me? My hour is not yet come. Now, I find interesting that his mother is like, she understood. She wasn't really fazed by it because she didn't get offended. She just turns around and tells the servants, whatever he tells you to do, just do it. So I'm like, okay, first of all, he seems kind of disrespectful. And then it doesn't bother her. She turns around and tells the servants, just do whatever he says. What's going on here? Well, uh, first of all, like I said, he actually worked a miracle. So he could have said very gently, yes, mother, I know. I'll take care of it right away. Because that's what he did, right? But that's not what he said. So it makes us wonder why he spoke to her this way. I mean, if you're going to do what your mother has in mind for you to do anyway, why don't you just agree to it and then do it? Why did he seem to put her off? I think the answer is that Jesus wanted to make it very clear. He had a very important point to make here. To make it very clear not only to his mother, but to anybody else, certainly his brothers and sisters, if they were there, and everybody else who was there, that because of who he was, his physical relationships on earth would not control him and would not obligate him. His mother would have no special advantage because she was his mother. She would not be someone that we could pray to because she was his mother. Or who would intercede for us because she was his mother. His mother and his siblings would have no special advantage to, you know, to guide their life more than what we have just because they were related to him. And he was making that point very clear. No special advantage to receive his salvation. And the reason is that Jesus is absolutely bound to his father's will and nobody else. He's bound to his father's will. Later in the book of John, we read that Jesus said, I do nothing of my own, but speak just what the Father has taught me. So he's saying, I do nothing and I speak nothing unless the Father tells me to. So his miracles, and this is an important point, his miracles were not at his mother's disposal or anybody else's disposal. And this is our, our point today, is that Jesus is not at our disposal for the working of miracles. We, can, we can't command him to work miracles on our behalf. We can seek Him. We can ask Him to intervene. In fact, Jesus said at one time that the Gentiles or the Greeks 
seek a sign. In other words, he was saying, seeking a sign or seeking a miracle is a characteristic of an unbeliever. That's what unbelievers do. They, they're, they're seeking miracles and they want Jesus to move. And they say, here, I need you to do this. You know, I'm, I'm almost 60 years old. And, and, and in my years of, of following the Lord and, and, and learning, uh, I've heard some really goofy teachings from, from people. I mean, I, I've heard some preachers say that, uh, and, and they, they try to find scriptures that they say teach this, that we can command God to do something. And God is like, he has to answer because we use the right phrase or, you know, whatever, whatever it is that, that they teach, we, we can do. And we command God and God has to move. He's like, he has, he has no other recourse. No, he's not at our disposal for the working of miracles. And so Jesus was having to work at the, or against the assumption of his day that his, his earthly family had an inside track of influence or an inside track of blessing. In fact, remember that woman in the crowd when Jesus was teaching a woman in the crowd? The Bible says, raise your voice. And she said this to him, blessed is the womb that bore you and the breast at which you nursed. And his response was, blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. So they were saying to him, oh, your mom, your mother is blessed. And he says, no. No, blessed are those who hear my words and obey my words. Uh, in other words, people thought there would be a special spiritual advantage in being the mother of Jesus. But Jesus just cut out that assumption and focused attention, not on the physical relationships, but on, on the spiritual relations. Another time, remember this, this uh, story where some people called to him while he was, uh, he was in a house, he was teaching. And they said to him, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. Remember his answer? His answer was, who are my brother, uh, who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about, Bible says, looking about, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. In other words, uh, having a saving relationship is a matter of following Jesus, not just being a, a part of his earthly family. So I think that's what's happening here. Jesus is explaining his relationship and why that's important. He's not disrespecting his mother. And she seems to understand that because she just turns around and says, okay. To the servants, whatever he tells you to do, do it. As if to say, okay, he's in charge, not me. Do what he says. Now, it could have been that she was in charge. And that's the reason she, she went to, to, to Jesus to tell him they've run out of, of, of wine. You're like, what do we do? But now she's, okay, he's in charge. Do what he says. So then verse 6 tells us that there were six stone jars, water jars nearby, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. Now it's very interesting that Jesus chose these water jars that were used for ceremonial washing. They would have been used for washing utensils, for washing their hands and their feet for bathing themselves. So these were jars that were used to holding water that wasn't necessarily clean water. This is why when the servants took the water, after they filled the, water, the jars with water, took the, the jars to, to the master of the banquet and uh, poured him some water. Surely, because the Bible says the master didn't know where the water had come from. And these, these men... These servants did. They knew the water had come from this jar. They, they took him just a cup of water, but they knew it had come from this jar. 
And they knew, well, this jar is usually filled with water that is not very clean. And so we're going to give him unclean water. They're probably going, I don't know. This is why it's important that Mary told him, do whatever he says. Otherwise, it would have said, we're not going to give him water from these jars. But they had been commanded or instructed, rather, to do whatever Jesus commanded. So they, they went and they, they, they gave him the water. And it turns out it was a, the best wine of the day. But what's interesting about this is, is Jesus specifically chose these jars to fill with water because I think he was about to change the focus from the Old Testament law, which included the ceremonial washing for sins, change the focus from that to his death on the cross and his blood, the new wine, his blood, which cleanses us, John wrote later in his one of his epistles, cleanses us from all unrighteousness. In other words, he was taking the purification rituals of the Jews and replacing them with a new way of purification, which was and is his blood. Because he turned the water into wine, and later he turned his wine into blood, symbolically speaking, of course. He turned the water into wine, and then he turned the wine into blood when he celebrated the the Last Supper with his disciples. He held up the cup and he said, this cup is a new covenant. And he explained how that the, the wine represented his blood. This is precisely why he told his mother, my hour has not yet come. Remember when he said, why are you involved in me in this? My hour has not yet come. What, what is this hour he's talking about? Well, his hour is the hour of death. When he died for sinners and when he made purification for their sins. And so he, he was wanting to teach, wanting to instruct, wanting to introduce something new. Something different. Now, whether they they understood that, I think maybe Mary did. There were things that she saw and she understood and she pondered in her heart. His disciples maybe understood uh, to a point because they believed in him, and uh, and yet there were things that they didn't understand. And I'm sure there were some that didn't understand understand this. But he was making this transition, and so he performs a miracle. And and I think it, it you know. I believe, and a lot of uh, scholars agree with this, that what Jesus is doing here is saying to Mary, so the hour of my death isn't here yet, but I'll give you a sign of my death. I'll give you an acted out parable, which is what this was, the turning the water into wine. I'll give you an acted out parable of my death and what it's going to mean. So when he performed the miracle, he gave a sign that pointed to his death as a price of salvation. But let me come full circle around and, and say this again. He not only performed this miracle as a sign of his death, but also, I believe, to show that he cares, <clears throat> excuse me, to show that he cares about the details of our lives. And he showed that he wants us to experience joy, true joy, the joy only he can give. Because the wine represents the joy that's only found in Jesus. And what's disturbing, and you know this to be true, is that many people get fixated on the actual wine to find joy, and they ignore the winemaker. They get fixated on the things here on earth that they think they can find joy through, whether it's alcohol, or whether it's drugs, or whether it's a uh, an immoral relationship, whatever it might be, get fixated on those things rather than the one who can give us true joy and satisfaction. Let me tell you, if you need joy, don't seek joy 
Seek Jesus. If you need a miracle, don't seek a miracle. Seek Jesus. This is about this is about Jesus. Our series is not so much about miracles. Yes, we're we're learning from the miracles, but it's not so much about seeking miracles. It's about seeking Jesus. So I want to ask you today: Are you seeking Jesus? As as we turn a corner and get ready to conclude, let me ask you: Are you seeking Jesus? And what does that look like? What does it look like to seek Jesus? Well, I would say check your daily and weekly schedule. That'll tell you if you're seeking Jesus. Because I, I believe to seek Jesus takes time. It takes effort. It takes time. Do you remember when Jesus took his disciples to, to the Garden of Gethsemane to pray with him? And he went off to pray and he came back to where they were and they were asleep. And he said to them, could you not watch with me one hour? Now, does that mean that we have to, we have to pray an hour a day? But not necessarily. I think the principle is it takes time. It takes time to seek Jesus. Jesus said, strive, strive to enter through the narrow gate. Make every effort to enter through the narrow gate. Sometimes we think, well, you know, I'm just saved by grace and there's none of my effort makes any difference. And that's true. But it does take effort. Jesus said it himself. Strive, make every effort to enter. In other words, he's saying it takes effort. It takes energy. It takes time to seek Jesus. And if we're getting up in the mornings and we start in our day, we never take time to seek Jesus. If we're just kind of coasting through the day, then eventually the bottom's going to fall out in our lives. So let me challenge you. Seek Jesus. To seek Jesus means you seek His Word. Because His Word testifies of Him. It means you get into a habit of reading His Word daily for direction, for instruction, and for strength. To seek Jesus means to seek His presence. His presence is real. His presence is powerful. We talked about this last week. Remember the, the disciples, the two disciples going to Emmaus? What did they say after they, they realized that was Jesus they had been walking with? They said to one another, didn't our hearts burn within us when he explained the scriptures to us? See, there are times that our hearts burn within us with his presence. That's a real thing. So seek his word, seek his presence, take time to read the scriptures, take time to pray and to seek his presence and his power. And to seek Jesus means to seek him above all other things, to prioritize him above everything else. That's why I said, check your daily and your weekly schedule. That'll tell you if you're seeking Jesus. If you're putting Him before other activities, before other things of lesser importance in your life. Jesus performed a miracle, but the servants had to do their part. And often the natural precedes the supernatural. And so there are things that we need to do. That starts with seeking Jesus. Because the one who turned the water into wine can turn your grief into joy. He can turn death into life. But many times we just got to take certain steps, steps of obedience and steps of faith. So my question to you today is, what is your next step? What is your next step? For some of you, your next step might be simply to make a decision to be a full-time follower of Jesus. Your next step might be simply to make a decision to turn your life and your heart over to Jesus 
and be his follower. To allow him to cleanse you, to purify you, to forgive you, to give you new life, to make you a new person. This doesn't happen by, by osmosis. We, we, this is a decision we must make and allow Jesus to come into our lives. For some of you, your next step might be uh, correcting a wrong relationship that is keeping you from following God wholeheartedly. For some of you, your next step might be, uh, maybe it's, it's time for you to get baptized as a sign that you're a follower of Jesus. Go through water baptism. For some of you, your next step might be just devoting more time in your schedule to seeking Jesus. Whether that means coming to church regularly, Bible study, or just in, in your devotional time. What is your next step? You alone know what that is. But I want to challenge you to take that next step today. Don't put it off. Seek Jesus today. He is a God of love and compassion who cares about even the trivial things in our lives. But let's start by seeking Jesus today.